From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the Republican presidential primary revs up, a new poll paints a nuanced picture of GOP voters. We asked this question, would you want your presidential candidate to prioritize the fight against woke left ideology or prioritize fighting for conservative policies on the economy, immigration and crime? And we find that about three times as many people say they want the priority to be on policy issues rather on these cultural issues. Our regular conversation with a Coloradan who fights polarization. Then when toddlers aren't fully vaccinated, it's not always hesitancy on their parents' part. Sometimes it's a question of convenience. Today, solutions. Try to increase flexibility in appointment scheduling, maybe have some evening hours or some weekend hours. Thank you to the many businesses that support Colorado Public Radio. Our sponsors all have one thing in common. They're seeking to build brand awareness among CPR's audience while supporting the programming we all rely on. See a list of current sponsors and learn about our customizable sponsorship packages at CPR.org sponsorship. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tonight is the first debate in the Republican presidential primary. The frontrunner, Donald Trump, has so far said he'll skip the event in Milwaukee. Just as the other candidates prepare to take the stage, though, a new poll sheds light on GOP voters, the issues that drive them and even their identities. This survey comes from More in Common, a nonprofit that fights polarization. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood, Colorado, is research director and joins us from time to time to discuss the political divide. And Stephen, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'll note that you'll have similar polls soon of Democratic and independent voters. But when it comes to Republicans, you surveyed 800 of them. How do they feel about America right now? Frustrated, discouraged, angry, tired. We asked which emotions they feel the most, and they're mostly negative. The highest support we got for a positive emotion was proud at around 57%, but mostly it's just negative. Is it economic in nature? Is it um, social in nature? Do you have a sense of that? It will be some of each. You know, we asked which issues Republicans care most about and they want to see more emphasized, and number one was inflation. It seems like economic issues are really crucial here. And to add some color to that, there's been this phenomenon, I'm sure you've caught it, of this never heard of him before artist, Oliver Anthony, who wrote this song, Rich Men North of Richmond, now soaring well past 30 million views, which is just this kind of elegy, this sad, pain anthem of somebody who's saying, I'm so tired of being downtrodden. And it seems to have captured the conservative world much more than any of the Republican candidates have who are all trying to get their messages out there. They're all trying to attract national attention. And it's the sorrow of feeling underrepresented, feeling neglected by Washington, D.C., and the hardship that that causes, which is instead front and center right now. Yeah, the phrase left behind seems to emerge in this survey. Yeah, We asked a question about 
how people feel about the direction of the country and the pace of change. And especially older generations worry that the direction of change and the pace of change will leave them behind. Also, we ask people about optimism and pessimism, and there's more optimism about me, my own life, my family, but then it gets very discouraging when we talk about the nation as a whole, and then especially when we think about future generations, that future generations are going to be worse off than us. In the preamble to this survey, you mentioned wanting to get beyond the labels Trump voter and Biden voter. Why? Because when we talk to these 800 Republicans, they say, well, what matters to me is that I'm an American and that I'm a mother or a father. What matters to me is that I'm a Christian or Catholic or Jewish or whatever it is. Yeah, it was like church attendance was way more important to people than their political affiliation, it seemed. Yeah. So when we asked people about community belonging, political groups were trivial compared to religious associations and people's identities that matter to them the most are about being American, about being a mother or father or a sibling about belonging to their faith. And then Republican comes fourth or fifth for most people. And so really we have a lot of frustrated, worried Americans who are deeply committed to taking care of their families who are showing up and voting in the Republican primary. And that's why we challenge those labels. I'll say that this is a poll of the country as a whole, not just Colorado. I will say that your poll shows Trump is the front runner among Republicans. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And and not just our poll. This is in keeping with the national averages that he's hovering around 50 percent or a little bit above that. And then the rest of the field is far, far behind DeSantis in the teens, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy hovering around five or seven percent, and then everyone else falling behind that. Ten percent of Republican voters say they don't know who they would vote for if the primary were today. Um, but really, it's Trump versus everybody else. That's a name recognition issue, perhaps, as well. It's so much of it is that. I mean, when you get past DeSantis and Pence, familiarity with these other candidates, even figures like Chris Christie, who's been a presidential candidate before, served in presidential administration, uh, prominent governor, uh, has name recognition and familiarity in the 30s. We see a lot of the candidates hovering in single digits. Um, so this will be the debut for a lot of candidates to really position themselves as somebody who could credibly take on Donald Trump. Okay, we'll get to issues that Republicans care about, according to this survey, in more depth in just a moment. But as you've said, about half of Republicans stand by the former president, who's under multiple indictments. And yet, 65% of those polled say they want someone in the White House who's, quote, honest and ethical. Nearly 80% are worried political divisions will lead to an increase in violence and hatred. Can, can you square the support with the former president with those latter values? It's a little bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because you have this tension where you see that everybody is worried about political division and that transcends partisan identity. It transcends race and gender and ideology. But you also have a lot of antipathy towards the progressive, what's called woke left, and you have a lot of resentment at the elite, uh, which we just talked about with the Oliver Anthony song. And so Republicans are having to sort out this tension between wanting a resolution to conflict, wanting a bipartisan leader. And on the other hand, wanting somebody who will put an end to a cultural direction which they don't like and which they fear and which they f think might leave them behind. 
Stephen Hawkins is back with us. He's research director for More in Common, the global nonprofit that fights polarization. Stephen's based in Englewood. And we're talking about a new survey of Republican voters ahead of the presidential debate tonight. Okay, two some more issues. Do the Republicans you surveyed want candidates to talk about abortion? It's split three ways. It doesn't seem to be the issue which is energizing the Republicans right now. Hmm. That would be talk about it more, talk about it as much as you are, and talk about it less. That's right. Interesting, but not a united front among the Republicans you surveyed across the country. Okay, to this idea of woke ideology. Uh, We hear a lot of powerful Republicans railing against what they see as as wokeism are voters talking about that as much as the politicians we see in the media? Not as much. We asked this question, would you want your presidential candidate to prioritize the fight against woke left ideology or to prioritize fighting for conservative policies on the economy, immigration and crime? And we find that about three times as many people say they want the priority to be on the economy, on immigration, on crime otherwise on policy issues, rather on these cultural issues. And we get similar results when we asked whether Republicans want a leader who will win the conflicts in our culture or work to heal the conflicts in our culture. People want healing. And so I I think what we're seeing here is that there is a significant, non-trivial, active base within the Republican Party that is really energized by these issues, but they are outnumbered about three to one. And I, I think if you go back to March of this year, when Trump spoke at CPAC, kind of the venue for showcasing upcoming presidential candidates on mm. the conservative side. The, the line that emerged from that speech that everyone might recall is when he said, I am your warrior, I am your justice, and for those who have been wronged or betrayed, I am your retribution. And DeSantis similarly saying, the fight has just begun, I've just started the fight. Those sorts of phrases are the ones which I think sort of have created the weather for the Republican contest right now. Um, But it isn't the mood that most Republicans are reflecting back in this poll, which is one that really would be happy for politics to be much quieter and more boring and more functional and less screaming, shouting division and acrimony and violence. Well, back to the theme that seems to emerge every time you're on our air which is that there is a disconnect often between what the electorate craves and what the speech is coming from our most powerful politicians. There is. And it's about fundraising. We often talk about the money. We often talk about fundraising and we talk about attention. We give an even-keeled speech that hits on the practical policies that are going to address a problem like inflation and you lose your social media audience. Say something loud and antagonistic and accusatory, and it'll get shared. And right now, in a field that's still wide open and where there are a lot of people trying to get their voices heard, being balanced and moderate and sensible and rational and having practical policies is probably not what's going to send your video clip, if you're a Republican candidate right now, to the top of people's news feeds. And so there's an attention economy that they're all competing within, and it doesn't serve the country. This attention economy, though, that you describe, it just feels inevitable, Stephen. I mean, your your whole career is dedicated to the idea of fighting polarization, but the messages that polarize us uh, seem to motivate us to give 
to pay attention? We have seen in recent memory, my recent memory at least, candidates like Barack Obama energize the electorate. People standing for hours on street corners to get in to a high school gymnasium that was electric with energy from a candidate who is promising hope. It's doable. And that was in the earlier stages of the social media era, the Facebook era, before really some of the current platforms have come to be dominant. But the message worked. And I think right now part of what's characterizing this Republican presidential primary field is cowardice and not sincerity. Because if the interviews press these leading candidates, including DeSantis and Pence, they recognize that Trump lost the election in 2020 and that he's not being honest about that. But they don't have the conviction and the sincerity to lay that out and then express what that means for the country to be in a position where they might have somebody under four indictments who is lying about his track record as, as a presidential candidate to be the front runner for their party. And tonight would be a good night for those candidates to find their courage. I think it would be a good night for the candidates to look across the stage and say, let's make sure it's one of us. Because if we're honest, we know that the 2020 election was not stolen. He has filed his lawsuits. They have failed, even among judges that he appointed with his own Republican leadership. And they should say, we need a plan. Because four indictments equals four chances for this man to not be eligible to serve in the presidency because he might be charged and convicted of a crime that removes him from candidacy. And they should say, how about we commit everybody on this stage to accepting the results of the 2024 presidential election and vowing that there will be no violence among my supporters if it doesn't go our way and saying, hey, we recognize the kernel of validity that Trump represents in being a combative figure against a woke ideology that many of us are afraid of, but our job is also to be constructive. And it's not just about fighting, it's about fixing. And that's what Americans want. They want somebody who's going to help them take care of their family, feel safe in their city, have a bright future for the next generation, not just somebody who is going to be bombastic and combative against the cultural left. And while they're at it, maybe they could say, let's make sure we have a party platform this time, which we didn't in the last election because we were so subordinated in our party to one man's wishes that we agreed to just not have an explicit plan for what we're going to try and do in the next administration. Those would be some of the things that candidates could say and say, hey, look, between us, it's an even match. Trump on the one hand, us on the other. Why not bind together? and look each other in the eyes and say, let's make sure it's one of us because we can't have somebody who's facing criminal indictments cost us this next election. So let's, let's find a way to make it work. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood is research director for the global nonprofit more in common. He joins us regularly to discuss political polarization. And we'll be right back with new insights into low vaccination rates among toddlers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
A newcomer to Colorado asked Colorado Wonders if the state has waterfalls. Well, we decided to take him on a hike to see for himself. <laughs> That's so incredible. Is this what you expected? <laughs> well, yes and no. I've seen waterfalls, but never like in person. I'm Jenna McMurtry. Come with Colorado Wonders on an awe-inspiring waterfall hike. Get recommendations for more and see pictures at CPR.org. When it comes to vaccinating toddlers, there's huge room for improvement in Colorado. And vaccine hesitancy is not the sole culprit, according to pediatrician Matthew Daly of Kaiser Permanente in Colorado. His new study offers up a range of solutions to protect kids against life-altering illness in a post-pandemic world. And hi, doctor. Hi, thanks so much. The data you drew on for this study actually predates the pandemic. It was 2019's National Immunization Survey, which includes some 16,000 infants across the country. What were you seeing, first off, as a pediatrician that led you to dive into these figures? You know, we, uh, like others in the country, study immunization coverage really closely, really carefully. And the reason we do so, it's not just an academic exercise. We want to understand if kids are under-vaccinated, why? And the reason is because we want to try to design strategies to try to improve immunization coverage. And again, that's also not just an academic exercise. We want to do that just because we want those kids to not get sick from those bad diseases. I mean, let's just name like a few of the diseases you're concerned about and the effect on a child's life they have. You know, these are diseases anywhere from diphtheria or tetanus or pertussis to something like uh, pneumococcal disease. Pneumococcal disease can cause um, meningitis. It can cause severe pneumonias. It can cause bloodstream infections. There's another disease called hemophilus influenza type B, and that also can cause meningitis and pneumonias and bloodstream infections, polio, measles. And each of these causes somewhat different diseases, but they are characterized by affecting young children and causing potentially quite serious or life-threatening disease. Many vaccinations against illness in childhood require multiple injections, meaning you have to return to the provider's office. And I know that plays into the picture, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. So what we did in this study, and this study was based on a 2019 survey, and I'll explain that in a minute, was we looked at all the kids in that 16,000 plus um, study. And first the parents were interviewed and then they were asked for permission to follow up with their child's doctor to confirm what vaccines their children had received. So this is really not just a survey of parents asking them to remember what vaccines their kids have received. It was provider verified. Mm. Okay. And then what we did was, again, we're trying to understand reasons why kids are un under vaccinated. What we did was we created three different groups based on the data, kids who completed uh, seven vaccine series, which is a lot of the familiar vaccines that you've heard about for infants that we've already talked about. Okay. Then we had another group that started all those series but didn't complete them. Mm -hmm. And then we had a third group who didn't start at least one of those vaccines in that series. And the reason we divided it into those three groups is that we think that those kids who started all vaccines in the series but didn't finish them probably have more barriers 
to getting those vaccines and less hesitancy because when we're talking about families that are more hesitant, they'll often not start an entire vaccine series. So we divided all those kids into those three groups. About 73% had completed the seven vaccine series, 10% didn't start one of those series, and then a full 17% started but didn't complete one of those multi-dose series. Those are kids who we think might have barriers to vaccination. And there's a lot, potentially, that you could ameliorate there. I mean, 17% is is not a small percentage. And again, that's 17% of of these kids, of these families that, that have at least the desire, right? They don't need convincing, but they have some barriers. Yeah, right. That's a great way to say it. We think, for the most part, it appears from our study and from the study of others that these are families that don't have vaccine hesitancy. They just have some barriers. And and maybe we could talk a little bit more about what those barriers are in a minute. But another point that I'd want to make here is that for these multi-dose series, getting the last dose in that series is important because the immune system of an 18-month-old is just a little bit more sophisticated than the immune system of a two-month-old. So there is some good data to show that when you get that last dose in that multi-dose series, it improves the quality of your immune response. Your immune response is just a little better, and it's also a little more durable. So this is not just sort of a bean counting, a bureaucratic exercise to say, oh, did you get every last dose? It really is about disease prevention. Getting that last dose appears to improve the quality and durability of your immune response. Okay, more on the barriers in a moment, but why look at 2019 data? I mean, the... That was a lifetime ago, doctor. Yeah, I know. And I I hear the the question in your voice and I totally understand it. There's a couple reasons. Okay. First of all, we really want to use this as a baseline against which to compare what happens in 2020, 2021, 2022. Okay. mm -hmm. That's, That's one reason. That sounds a little bit academic, but I get it. Okay. A second reason is that the 2022 data isn't sort of done yet. And then the third reason is that we think that these barriers are going to persist through the pandemic and maybe even get a little bit worse. And so just getting a handle on how many kids that is, is important. One of the the barriers that you point to, and again, this is beyond the idea of hesitancy. This is not parents who are concerned that vaccines will harm their child, for which the the evidence is questionable. Um, These are parents who started but didn't follow through necessarily. And you point to needing a PCP, a primary care provider, as critical right. to this, right? Yeah. And that's that's not a variable that was directly sort of measured in that survey of parents. But we have some other indicators like kids who moved across state lines were less likely to complete these multi-dose vaccine series. We also found that kids who were lacking health insurance coverage we're also less likely to complete this multi-dose vaccine series. And so those sound like, feel like barriers. That might mean that they haven't established care in the new state that they moved to, or that they're having trouble accessing care because they don't have health insurance. And that's where having a primary care provider or a PCP makes all the difference. It's a provider who knows you. It's a provider who knows your family. It's a provider who can look at your immunization record and say, well, you got most of your vaccines, but there's some that you need to finish. 
And you can understand how moving across state lines would make it hard for families. They need to remember to bring some record of the vaccines their child received at their old PCP's office or in their old state. And then, you know, lack of health insurance coverage, um, I think, in some ways speaks for itself that it's going to be a barrier. Even though there are systems in place like the Vaccines for Children program that are supposed to provide vaccines free of charge to kids without insurance, it's still hard for those families, right? Because they don't have a, a trusted PCP that they can go and see. I'm guessing that the effect is disproportionate then on lower income and communities of color. It is. It is. Children living in lower income households, children living in rented homes, and then non-Hispanic Black children, they were all more likely not to finish a multi-dose series. And so then those things all sort of put those kids at risk. Yep. Well, you've identified the problem. What's the solution? Is it that, I don't know, I'm thinking of the primary care provider in the state, the family left. Does that person have a responsibility? Is it the school the kid signs up for in the new state? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Ryan. And and that ultimately helps frame kind of why we did this work in the first place, right? There's been a lot of attention recently about vaccine hesitancy. And for understandable reasons, you know, um, there are parents who have concerns about the safety of vaccines. But it felt like to us that that was the main emphasis of why kids were undervaccinated. And we felt like we wanted to try to quantify how many kids were undervaccinated due to other reasons like these barriers that we've been talking about. So here are some strategies that are proven to work in that circumstance. Okay. Number one is, of course, get kids health insurance. Okay. Number two is, you know, try to make sure that every child has a medical home, a primary care provider, whether that's a family medicine physician or a pediatrician. A third strategy is something called reminder recall. And that's where parents receive a call or a text or an email letting them know that their child is due for vaccines, is behind on vaccines. That's a great system because for some of these parents, they actually don't know that their child's missing the last dose of DTAP or that last dose of pneumococcal vaccine. And so a reminder brings them in, they get that dose, that dose gives their child better protection and we're good. There's also something called provider prompts. And what that is, is most of us are working in an environment with an electronic health record. That electronic health record has that child's immunization records in there. And when I'm seeing a kid for something else, let's say I'm seeing a kid for behavioral issue or I'm seeing a child for uh, ear infection, the electronic health record can say, this child is missing their last dose of DTAP, and you could consider giving that today. And that's a nice reminder to me. I'm focused on other things, but the system's reminding me to immunize that day, oh, and I bring it up with the families. It's yep. so funny you're bringing this up, because today, today was my annual checkup, my physical, and um, guess what I got? A tetanus shot. Uh, so this speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Is, is all, well, is it all probably of, does. Yeah. That was probably a provider prompt. We're taking a deep dive into childhood immunization data with pediatrician Matthew Daly of Kaiser Permanente in Colorado. He has a new study that not only describes the obstacles to vaccination, which is not always just hesitancy, but systemic issues, access to healthcare, uh, and he offers up some solutions. Is all of this a drain on a pediatrician's time? 
You know, I would I would say mostly no, because we're trying to do everything we can to protect kids' health. We know that vaccines are so effective at preventing these diseases that we want to do everything we can to make sure that the kids in our practice have high immunization coverage so they don't get these bad diseases. And I, I, I do honestly worry about families um, that come to see me who are not fully vaccinated because I think that would be terrible if you got one of these bad diseases. And I tell families it keeps me up at night. And, and that's a sincere statement. I, I worry because I feel like that's a that's a missed opportunity to prevent some bad diseases. And I'm just hoping that that doesn't come up. So I don't think it's a drain. I think you need systems in place. You need a lot of help with this. You need staff in place. And I would emphasize we need to meet families where they're at. And some families, they're not vaccinating because they have concerns about safety. And we need to be able to address that too. But we're sort of talking about a different thing here, which is to try to overcome some of these barriers. Um, some other ways to over- overcome these barriers are, you know, try to increase flexibility in appointment scheduling, maybe have some evening hours or some weekend hours, you know, just try to make it as as easy as possible for families to get those vaccines that their children are missing. And then you mentioned one thing, Ryan, that I wanted to bring up, which is school immunization requirements. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see patients too at Kaiser and just even a couple of weeks ago, I was seeing a family and I said, you know what, uh, I'm Dr. Daly and what are you here for? And and the parents said, you know, I'm here to get vaccines for Johnny so Johnny can go to school. And Johnny's a made up name, but you, you see where I'm going. Yeah. And I said, I understand why you're here, but vaccinating so Johnny can go to school is actually not why I want to vaccinate. I want to vaccinate Johnny so that he doesn't get these bad diseases. But the fact that there are these school requirements just helps encourage you to come in so we can have this conversation. So there's that piece. But here we're talking about kids younger than two years of age. So there are daycare requirements, but really that's not the main driver. So that's probably not going to be the thing that moves the needle here as much Hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. Some of those kids aren't in daycare. Some of those kids are cared for by a family member. Um, a grandparent. And so there's not quite that mechanism of trying to make sure that those kids are up to date. So that's probably not going to be a big driver here. It's these other things that are probably going to improve immunization coverage for these kids. Well, as a clearer picture emerges of how young people are being vaccinated after the pandemic, uh, perhaps we'll have you back on the show. Dr. Daly, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, of course. I I would love to come back once we have a little bit of data uh, later through the pandemic. But what we're hoping is that immunization coverage really didn't take as big a hit as we thought it might have during the pandemic. And then we just start from there and again, continue to, to work away at this problem. That is pediatrician Matthew Daly of Kaiser Permanente in Colorado. A note, Dr. Daly is the brother of CPR's health reporter, John Daly. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with why the future is much more likely about buses than flying cars. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The criminal cases against former President Trump and his allies are unfolding across the country, but they have a Colorado connection. One of the alleged co-conspirators in state and federal indictments is lawyer John Eastman, Eastman was serving as a visiting scholar at CU when he got involved in efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he's still playing a role in Colorado politics. Read more about Eastman at CPR.org. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. City buses aren't always fast. They get stuck in traffic. They make a lot of stops. Even buying a ticket can suck up precious seconds. But there are plans to speed up some key bus lines in the Denver area. CPR's Nathaniel Miner traveled to another city to see what this might look like. I'm standing at a bus stop in Minneapolis, Minnesota, just a few miles south of downtown on Chicago Avenue. It's a busy street. And this stop kind of looks like a train station. There's a big shelter with lots of space. Um, There's heaters overhead because it gets cold here in the winter. There are ticket machines so you can buy your ticket ahead of time. There is a big electronic display showing when the next bus is gonna come. And let's see, the next bus is gonna come in 30 seconds. A long blue bus pulls up. Passengers quickly get on and off through all three doors. I take a seat next to Don Morgan. She's a Minneapolis grandma wearing a green t-shirt and tortoiseshell glasses. Her old bus, the Route 5 to the Mall of America, is now the D-Line. Uh, the 5 was a long ride. It stopped at almost every corner. It was a long ride. <laughs> And the D-line now. Yes, and this is a lot quicker, don't have as many stops. And that is the big idea here. Minneapolis and St. Paul are going all in on bus rapid transit, or BRT. Put simply, BRT lines are less like a local bus and more like a light rail train. Fancy stations are designed to get people on and off quickly. Buses get priority at traffic signals and some will even have their own lanes. BRT lines are also relatively cheap and fast to build, so Denver officials are taking notice. If you're looking at bang for the buck, this is the way to do it. Bill Lindeke is a transit advocate and a lecturer at the University of Minnesota. So I hope that the Metro Transit can be a model for agencies around the country. Um, Kind of bring the bus back and make the bus sexy again, as people say. Denver wants to make its buses sexy, too. Local and state officials are planning at least three BRT lines here by the end of the decade. And they've traveled to Minneapolis for inspiration and ideas. Brian Welch is RTD's assistant general manager for planning. If you're in Minneapolis, it's really easy to figure out what's bus rapid transit because there's consistent branding, consistent marketing. To me, it feels like a system. That's what we want to get to in Denver. Denver system will be called the Lynx, and it'll mark a shift for RTD. RTD has spent billions of dollars on rail lines, mostly designed to get suburban commuters into downtown. Ridership has never met expectations on most of those lines. All along, its city buses have seen few improvements. Some have been cut entirely. But now, RTD and its partners are finally turning their attention to city buses. And like the Twin Cities, they're going to focus on urban corridors where riders are disproportionately low income, black and brown, and dependent on transit. The first three lines will open on East Colfax, Federal, and Colorado Boulevards. On the bus transit side, this is definitely the biggest thing I think that's ever happened, you know, since the establishment of the Regional Transportation District in 1969. The improvements have paid off in Minnesota. Katie Roth with Metro Transit in the Twin Cities says ridership has increased after every new BRT line opens, even after the pandemic. 
And she's heard directly from riders who say they love the new buses. And that was one of those points where you realize that this is really affecting people's day-to-day life. And this is what it's about, is not only attracting people who wouldn't be riding transit to the system, but giving people time back in their day who are already on the bus, making that a better and faster ride. There can be some drawbacks. Construction is always a headache. Taking lanes of traffic or parking can be controversial. Fewer bus stations mean passengers have to walk farther. But Don Morgan, the Minneapolis bus rider, says the improved ride is well worth any of its trade-offs. I think the new bus system is uh, working out good. They better try it in Denver. They'd like it. (laughs) Denver's first BRT line will open on East Colfax by 2027. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And that bus-filled future for Metro Denver is part of a bigger vision from Democratic lawmakers for more public transit statewide. The question, of course, is always how to pay for more buses and trains. Well, this week we learned there's a new effort brewing. Nathaniel Miner is back in Denver and joins me. Hi. Good morning, Ryan. What is the news here? Well, the news is that a powerful state legislator is working on a bill that would do a few big things. First, it would increase funding for transit across the state. It would also push for more housing density near transit. That legislator, that legislator is Senator Faith Winner from Westminster. It's important because we know that we have to tie land use, the climate, to transit. And the way we're going to do that successfully is to ensure that there is affordability at transit centers so people can live and work near transit centers and use transit efficiently and easily. She mentioned climate. The thought here is that more transit and denser housing is better for the environment, I guess. Yeah, that's right. You don't need to drive as much if you have good transit service and you live closer to work and other stuff you need in your life. If that sort of argument sounds familiar, you might be thinking of Governor Polis's big land use bill last legislative session that would have forced cities to allow more density. Yeah, and that failed rather spectacularly. It sure did, yes. Uh, this new bill would resurrect a little piece of that old one. It's unclear if the new bill would actually incentivize density or truly mandate it. The trade group for local governments is pushing for incentives, as you might expect. What do we know about the funding specifics here? How much money would it raise and how? Yeah, we don't know much. Uh, Keep in mind, these are early discussions about legislation that would be considered in next year's legislative session. Uh So they just kind of get this started. That starts in the winter of 2024, so a couple months out. Winner says she and three co-sponsors are meeting with interest groups and starting to draft this bill. Um, They're looking at new or higher fees that could raise revenue or possibly a new tax. But because of Tabor, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, any new tax has to go to the ballot. And it would be a statewide ballot measure. Or or I suppose it could also be for just discrete regions like the Denver area, too, right? Yeah, we don't know yet. something to watch. A Denver metro-only ballot measure would be pretty challenging because of RTD's checkered history. You are referring, I think, to the big fast tracks vote in 04 that raised taxes and built a lot of rail lines. Yeah, and not to get too deep in the weeds here, but that massive project has plenty of big successes. The A-line to the airport, people generally like. 
and also some failures, right? Plenty of taxpayers are still upset that they're paying for this train to Boulder that still hasn't been built. So asking taxpayers for more transit money here, that could be pretty tricky. How are legislators dealing with that dynamic? So a few ways. First, Winter says her bill would increase transparency and accountability for RTD, though, again, we don't really know exactly how to do that, how it would do that. Second, Fast Tracks was all about building stuff, right? Building trains. Winner and other transit advocates, now they want to focus on service. So how often trains run mm. and buses. Here's Danny Katz with the Colorado Public Interest Research Group. Now it's time to make a similar large investment to expand service so that buses and trains are coming every five to 10 minutes, that the stops and stations are nice with shelters and, and benches, and that it's the kind of system that really provides people choice and, and more options to get around without always having to drive. Katz is part of a coalition that's laying the groundwork for a transit funding ballot measure. They're in discussions with Faith Winter. She's aiming to get her bill ready for the next legislative session in the winter, and advocates are looking at the November 2024 ballot. So a lot of unknowns right now, but things should start happening pretty soon. Yeah, I think the big theme here, Nate, is frequency. That if you know the bus or the train is coming often you may be more likely to take it. Yeah, that's uh -huh. absolutely right. Because right now you might be waiting half an hour or an hour in some places, and that's just kind of impossible to plan your life around. You know, just watching the Jetsons growing up, I never thought buses would be the future. I thought for sure it was flying cars. <laughs> but in a way, it's like the most um, unsexy and utilitarian way of getting around might be the future. Yeah, if you look, actually, the auto industry has this habit going back 100 years of promising the next big thing uh -huh. about 10 years from now. So for the last couple of decades, it's been self-driving cars are just around the corner. And they're still just around the corner. So people like Faith Winner are like, well, we're done waiting. So let's let's get something that we know works, buses. buses. Let's get more of those. That is CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Minor. You can read his ongoing reporting on this issue at CPR.org. When we come back, generations of bluegrass. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado has 16 national natural landmarks. You'd recognize many of them. Scenic, iconic places like the Garden of the Gods, Hanging Lake. And then there's a very different site you cannot see. And not just because it's underground. Sulfur Cave in Steamboat Springs is potentially deadly. Sulfuric acid drips from the ceiling. The air reeks of rotten eggs. A breath or two could knock you out. And yet life exists here. Bacterial colonies live off the sulfur, and in turn, they feed a rare worm. Just an inch long, the worm wriggles and writhes in large, twisted, blood-red clumps, needs only trace amounts of oxygen, and can even detoxify air in the cave. Scientists are interested in studying these cave worms in hopes of developing medical benefits. An important role for the unique life form thriving in the brimstone haze of Steamboat Springs Sulfur Cave. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. When a novel has a strong sense of place, that place becomes a character of its own. And that is absolutely the case with the book we've chosen to read together. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Go as a River is our latest pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It takes place in Iola, Colorado, which was wiped off the map to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. 
Go as a River takes place in the years before Iola was slowly evacuated, then inundated. It is also about the displacement of indigenous people in the West. Author Shelley Reed has already had already begun writing it, I should say, when in 2018, drought exposed Iola from beneath Blue Mesa Reservoir. And I think it was very painful for the people who had lived there and had been evacuated to see the remnants of the place that they loved reemerge. No one ever thought we would see that again. So pick up a copy of Go As a River by Shelley Reed and then join me on the Western Slope September 13th as I interview her. We'll be on stage at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. Tickets are free at cpr.org slash turn the page. Again, September 13th in Grand Junction, cpr.org slash turn the page for all the details. Sometimes in music, what's old is new again. On their latest album, Colorado's infamous String Dusters introduce their younger fans to some of Bluegrass's oldest material. A tribute to Flat and Scruggs tips the hat to two of the genre's founding fathers, singer and guitarist Lester Flat and banjo extraordinaire Earl Scruggs. You may recognize their music from the 1960s TV show The Beverly Hillbillies. Well, the first thing you know, old Jeb's a millionaire. The kinfolks said, Jeb, move away from there. Said, California is a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Swimming pools, movie stars. The Beverly Hillbillies. Or the car chase in the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde. While the duo's influence on the infamous String Dusters is immense, banjo player Chris Pandolfi believes many of his fans may not be too familiar and hopes this new album will serve as a history lesson. I don't think that the majority of them know about old school bluegrass. I think they probably know about Leftover Salmon and Yonder Mountain String Band, String Cheese Incident, some of the bands that really paved the way for what we're doing. But where this music actually came from is a different story. And it's interesting because it really is a relatively short history. I mean, bluegrass has only been around since the mid-1940s. 1946 is sort of widely recognized as the year that bluegrass began when Bill Monroe's vision met Earl Scruggs's banjo playing, Lester Flatt singing, and out of nowhere, this amazing new genre was formed, but never really was that popular. Members of the Dusters each brought their favorite Flat and Scruggs songs to the table. The signature instrumental, Earl's Breakdown, was a no-brainer for Pandolfi as the banjo player. Another favorite, Blue Ridge Cabin Home, which features his vocals. I'm singing lead on Blue Ridge Cabin Home, which is sort of an anomaly for the string dusters, but I love to sing. I just, 
was focused more on the instrumental stuff from early on, and we have four other guys in the band who are very passionate about singing, but they've uh, they've been kind and let me sneak in there with a few more vocals. There's a well-beaten path on this old mountainside where I wandered when I was a lad. And I wandered along to the place I call home in those Blue Ridge Hills so far away. Pandolfi reflected on the first time he heard a Flat and Scruggs record. He was in college, fairly new to his instrument. I remember taking that album back and slowing it down somehow using some software on the computer and like really starting to dissect these notes and just being knocked out by the rhythm of Earl's playing. And I heard something that I hadn't heard before, even though I was already really in love with the banjo and feeling so much inspiration but i'll never forget when i got my first copy of tis sweet to be remembered it was sort of a, a game changer moment in my career tis sweet to be remembered on a Earl Scruggs died in 2012, but not before Chris Pandolfi had the chance to see one of his banjo heroes. I did meet Earl. I met him a couple times, and Andy Hall, our dobro player, actually played in Earl Scruggs' band, which is one of the coolest things ever. Pandolfi remembers being backstage at a festival out east. And Earl came in on a golf cart. Everyone in the whole area stopped what they were doing, stopped eating, stood up, and gave him you know, a minutes long ovation. And I get chills just thinking about it. You know, this is, this is a really special thing to be able to hear this legendary artist, to be able to experience his music up close and in person. And it's something that the younger pickers don't get to do these days and something that I don't take lightly. Because in the time that we've been professional musicians, we've seen those first generation guys Ralph Stanley, Earl Scruggs, pass on. So when we started out playing, you could go to a festival and see Earl Scruggs, the guy who invented the music, play. And that's a pretty heavy thing. And musicians coming up these days, they don't get to do that. you know. So it's our job to keep that music alive and keep that flame burning. And as I've said so many times, thankfully, it's burning as bright as it ever has right now. Down the road, down the road, got a little pretty gal down the road. Chris Pandolfi of Denver plays banjo for the infamous String Dusters. Their latest album is a tribute to Flat and Scruggs. You can catch them perform at Red Rocks September 6th, supporting country star Dirk Bentley. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. 
Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.